All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. As always, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham. And with us, we have Joe Szymanski, Kraz Granitz, and Dylan Brown this week, all of us here. Uh, so very exciting to have the full panel uh, on this week. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get started here. We've had an interesting week of politics. Um, the the picture is not solidified as nationally as, I, as we would have liked. It's actually kind of in a strange position right now, as it were. Um, you've got a bunch of weird contradictory polling. You've got Democrats spinning at a bunch of races that we don't think are competitive. Uh, and we've had a couple of debates this week with some races we're paying attention to. So we'll go ahead and start though with the, with the more interesting or with the less interesting of the bunch, the New York governor debate. Uh, there's been a lot of attention in New York lately. I, we mostly feel this is undeserved. Uh, again, we've heard a lot of rumblings about things. The polling seems to be relatively tight. But just from our own math, we think it's very unlikely that this thing is even what we would consider to be relatively close. That being said, uh, a lot of money is being poured into this race. A lot of money is being poured into upstate New York, um, 17 district, uh, 18th district, all of the ones in the Hudson Valley, uh, upstate districts. Even the even the 25th district is getting money for some reason. Long Island districts. Basically, the basically the idea here seems to be that Zelda could do well enough that these sorts of districts would be in well, and play in the gubernatorial race, and you get a surprise result. So, what happened in the debate? Uh, not much, although it's interesting how not great Hochul was at debating. Um, one thing that I noticed during the debate in particular was that Zel he, she would give Zeldin a genuinely tough question uh, that, that should play very, very well for a Democratic state like New York. Zeldin would just deflect from the question, direct her to something that direct her to something else, and she would take the bait and leave that initial question forgotten. Um, that sort of scattershot debate approach uh, really did not benefit her. Um, at the same time, Zeldin faced a lot of issues, in particular the second half of the debate. Uh, his stance on abortion in particular. His answer on abortion was okay. His answer on Planned Parenthood was not great. And then, of course, his answers on the election uh, stuff. He did not vote to certify the election. All of this stuff was less than good for Zeldin. That being said, I think it's hard to look at this debate and say Zeldin didn't come out on top to some degree. Hochul just kind of came off as very low energy, if you wanted to put it in a Trumpian sort of sense. But we, again, don't think this is going to be too competitive. We think this is our odds are probably somewhere around Hochul plus 10 to 12, which is more in line with like a 2014 style midterm. I could see it being more like a 10 because in 2014, uh, Mastrino, or, uh, Astriano got really good numbers in Westchester County, got really good numbers upstate, won Monroe County, uh, but he lost a lot of downstate areas that a Republican will certainly be winning against Kathy Hochul. Staten Island in particular, uh, probably both Nassau and Suffolk counties, I would think, and maybe a little bit of inroads in Brooklyn and Queens, not a ton, but closer to Trump numbers. If that sort of thing happens, that's how you get to a plus 10. But I just want to throw the panel here before we get into the really interesting debate. Did any of you watch this? What do you think of it? Um, I don't think it changes the, the, the mechanics of this race too much. Again, we're very skeptical of this. We're talking about it because there's not a lot to talk about right now. Uh, surprisingly, no Kansas polls, for example. Yeah. Uh, if there were Kansas polls, we'd Amazing. be talking about Kansas instead of New York. Uh, let's just put it that way. Well, Amazing I, that there are no Kansas polls. Yeah, I think I think what's going on here, and I, I think I'm kind of skeptical that this race is super competitive, and I think what's going on is a couple things. Is that first, pollsters have had a really bad couple cycles, and I think that creates mm -hmm. incentives where pollsters don't want to pull close races. They don't want to pull Kansas. They don't want to pull Michigan. Um, it creates an incentive for pollsters who – are a little bit more GOP friendly to get into the average because they can say, look at the last few cycles when we're accurate, it creates a market to be aggressive on the GOP. Trafalgar. 
and Calder, yeah, not to I feel like Emerson's getting in on that game. And, uh, and you know, the, the obvious answer, right. Is to go pull a state like New York. The incentive is to put your, your uh, stake in the ground and say, look, we're going to predict, you know, this really unexpected GOP win. Um, that's worked out well for people the last couple cycles. Um, New York's an obvious choice because every GOP consultant ever grew up in Long Island. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, just it, it's like the California recall, right? You know, the California recall got a lot of the same kind of coverage. Trafalgar came out with a poll showing Newsom only up single digits on the recall in the last week. Um, he won that recall by 25 points. Um, I don't think Coco will win by that much. Um, but I don't think it's impossible. This is something like, you know, again, similar to like VA 10, Virginia's 10th district back in 2018, where everybody knew that, uh, you know, Barbara Thomas was a dead, yeah, it was a dead woman walking. And, um, you know, the GOP continued to pour money in there because every GOP consultant lives, <laughs> lives in Barbara Comstock's district. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm personally skeptical about the competitiveness of the race. I think it's one of those things where a lot of people who are kind of in the GOP polling consultant apparatus have a lot of personal incentive to really, really, really want to believe it's competitive. And I just mm -hmm. don't think it is. Oh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely in the class of South Dakota is going to be competitive or Oklahoma yeah, is going to be competitive. Utah is going to be competitive. Like Democrats have actually done a better job of not falling for this stuff this cycle. But in the last couple cycles, like there were numerous races like this where Democrats just like really, really wanted to believe they were competitive. Like the um, Devin Nunes race. And yeah, the Devin yeah. Nunes race. Lindsey Graham. The Lindsey Graham race is actually a very good example of this. And Democrats mm -hmm. done a better job not falling for that this cycle. But like, Except Marcus Flowers. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the idea, though, that like um, the idea that, you know, the consultant and polling class has like an interest in certain races being competitive so they get more attention than they probably should is like not a new thing, I don't think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to agree with Kraz on that. And I, I think you just have to kind of look look at. I mean, we've Eric has done a very very good job of making this point. Uh, the, what actually has to happen for Lee Zeldin to win is just such in the range of unlikeliness and like improbability it, that it's like you you can see massive massive swings in Long Island and Central and Upstate New York. And it still only gets within like well, I think what was it, Eric, seven or six points? Yeah, let me let me pull up the article here because I did write an article about this, and I did the math in the election shuffler, which you can use to do this yourself. I didn't just go off presidential, by the way. I went off of the 2018 election numbers, which I think are a reasonable barrier, a reasonable for barometer for what you can see this year in terms of turnout. Um, mm -hmm. So I modeled it off of that, and if you look at the races right here, so start out give uh give democrats or give give lee zeldin the best of everything give him the best upstate every county except for erie which is not going to go for lee zeldin it did go for Car carl paladino by almost 20 points which again is not going to happen if you give him every county except for erie the best margins any republican has seen over the last decade that moves this thing by a 21 point win to a 17 point win not a lot of people live in upstate about a third of the state Again, you're still losing Syracuse, you're still losing Ithaca, still losing Buffalo, still losing Albany. These aren't terrible numbers, though. I did not include I did not include uh, Westchester and uh, Rockland counties because those are not upstate counties. Um, next, suburban swing. Shift all the suburban counties uh, 10 points to the right. And New York City, 20 points to the right. Again, this is basically Republicans win Nassau. They win Suffolk. They win Rockland County. 
They shift 10 points in Westchester, which is increasingly college educated and increasingly uh, not elastic. And you give them the best case in New York City. They go from losing losing this uh, by like a, you know, what was it, 77 or 72 to 22. Trump got 22% of the vote. This gets them to 32% of the vote, a third of the vote. That's better than George Pataki got in 1994. That is actually better. He got 27%. That still only gets them within seven. Um, you can shift this, you can shift the suburbs and New York City an additional 20 or 10 points. So you shift New York City 30 points. You shift New York City or the or the suburbs 20 points. That still only gets you within one and a half. Basically, what would need to happen for this race to actually flip, not just be competitive, actually flip, is you need to get Lee Zeldin getting 35 to 40 percent of the vote in New York City. Not Which, happen. Yeah, again, just if on stream that night, if that happens, if Lee Zeldin <laughs> ends his final numbers when the ballots are counted in New York with over 35% of the vote in New York City, I will eat a hat. I will even, then, a hat even then, 35% as a baseline, he still needs to do everything else. He, well, still, so needs, and, he still needs and, to swing back in Westchester County. He still needs to win Suffolk and the Saw counties. He still needs to do probably bad. better than Molinaro upstate. He needs to win, be winning upstate by like, what, 10, 15 points. Like, it is a lot. It's a lot that needs to happen. Well, so, and why this is so hard, and I think, like, one thing that listeners should be aware of, um, just like for this election especially, is like, I think that you have to think about this election is probably going to have pretty high turnout, right? Mm -hmm. Not as high as 2020, but a lot of estimates put it at least at 2018 levels, right? So, so pretty high. And the thing is that when you have really high turnout, the closer you're getting to the electorate, simply reflecting the last presidential election. Mm -hmm. And when you have high turnout, that means that all the gains that a party gets have to come from persuasion, right? So when we say Zeldin has to improve by, you know, 20% in this or that county, we're not saying that, oh, this is a low turnout special election and he can rely on Democrats not showing mm -hmm. up. If right. we think New York is going to be pretty high turnout, he basically has to convert one out of every 10 voters to go from voting mm -hmm. from, you know, Joe Biden or Andrew Cuomo to voting for him, mm -hmm. right? And I think that this is um, one reason we've generally been skeptical of some of the more outlandish um, polls this cycle is that we think there's going to be high turnout and we could be wrong, but I don't think the evidence shows that even if we are wrong about there being high turnout, that the GOP has like some massive mm. advantage. And so I yeah. think, you know, yeah, none of the early voting shows a massive Republican. Advantage. Well, except Florida, but except, yeah. well, Florida is yeah. Florida, but like, yeah. the, but like in, in most cases, I don't think you, you either see very high turnout across the board or you see relatively even turnout, even if it's lower, like in Nevada and so I just think that we've been skeptical that, you know, you're going to see people like Lee Zeldin, who really has not run this campaign very much as a moderate, um, you know, somehow converting. Yeah, because frankly, he's not credible as a moderate. Like, converting, I, yeah, converting, converting one sixth of all Biden voters in the state of New York to vote for him, if, um, which if, is just like a crazy number to think about. Yeah, if Maralino were the nominee again, Molinaro, I would, yeah. Molinaro I'm sorry, I would find this. Can't believe you hate Italians. Slightly more credible. <laughs> what? Mm -hmm. Can't believe you hate Italians like that. Yeah. Well, here's, an, here's another way to think about it, right? I've seen people compare this to Virginia. And Virginia Virginia was an 11-point Biden state. So think about New York. Not, I think it was, I thought it was only nine. It was 10. Uh, it, it was 10. So think about it. it was 10 Virginia has far fewer voters than New York, but it's also very different in terms of composition than New York. 
the vast majority of New York's population lives in either New York City or the suburbs. Very small position lives in rural areas. I'm just doing math real quick here in DRA. So just taking all the counties here, let's consider, and uh, this is probably going to be roughly inaccurate, right? Because the, there's a lot of different areas in Virginia. But let's just go ahead and say like the classify things like three different types of counties. You've got core urban counties that go heavily Democratic. you got suburban counties, which can go anywhere from competitive to Republican to very Democratic. And then you've got rural areas. So um, again, this is going to be slightly inaccurate because, because Virginia has way too many cities. Um, it's got way too many of them. I don't think this is a controversy. Look at the composition here for this. So basically, you got these core urban counties. Uh, you got DC direct area. You got uh, you got you know Roanoke. You've got uh, Albemarle, Charlottesville. You got uh, Richmond, and then you got these other counties right here. These went Democratic in the presidential election, seventy-two to twenty-six. They're less Democratic than New York City. You got these direct shiny suburbs. These go to Democrats by about thirteen, and they go to um, to um, Youngkin oh. by about one point. And then you got the rural areas, which again, these are not all rural. These go to Trump by about 13, and then they go to uh, to Youngkin by about 34. The rural counties that I've roughly qualified here are the largest portion of the population in the state. They're bigger than these core urban counties. They're bigger than the suburbs. And Republicans did better in the suburbs. So that's 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 Virginia. I'm going to do the exact same thing to New York, and it's going to be a lot easier because New York actually has a lot more counties you could classify as core urban. Well, and Even also I, also the other problem, I mean, like Zeldin could overperform like Youngkin did, and he'd still lose by by, by double digits. Yeah, right? like yeah, right. Like like the problem here is not that like I mean, first off, even if you like buy Zeldin's crossover appeal, whatever. Like he, he would have to would. like double like Glenn Youngkin's overperformance. And like, I just don't think like, this is where also the kind of the consultant polling class thing comes in. Like I get that crime has been an issue that has hurt Hochul, but I feel like the degree to which crime can swing large numbers of voters is might be kind of overestimated by like, you know, polling people and consultants. Mm -hmm. um, Again, it's, it's just such a difficult set of circumstances. Even the circumstance I gave, it's not just, even in, even in a world where, where Lee Zeldin is getting 40% of the vote, 35% of the New York vote in New York City, that's still not enough to guarantee a win. He still has to pull those margins upstate where Hochul is actually from. He still has to pull those, those margins in Long Island. He still has to pull them in the suburbs, in Westchester and Rockland counties. Rockland's not as big of an issue for him, but Westchester, very big issue. Very big issue for Lee Zeldin. Um, like, it's just, it's such a difficult difficult scenario to work with that I just don't consider it to be extremely viable. Um, yeah. I like mean, you can, you can shoot us if we're wrong. I'll eat a cricket on stream. If I'm wrong, I would like to be really wrong because I'm a Republican, but like, it's just, it's just not, it's not an extremely viable scenario. So like, so here's the other one. Here's the New York's. And, and again, this is again, very rough. I've, I've classified New York into four categories because New York is a little bit different. Um, so you've got um, – so here in New York, you've got New York City, 8 million people. This went to Democrats, 76 to, to 23. That's really bad. These suburban counties, these are roughly as Democratic as Virginia suburbs. Then you've got these additional upstate urban counties. These are you know Rochester, Buffalo, Ithaca, Albany. Oh, I actually forgot to move one of them, uh, Syracuse. There we go. 
uh, Biden plus 21 in these counties right here. And then the rural ones are Trump plus seven. Um, this is your problem right here. Uh, look at the biggest front of the population is New York City. Oh, about half the population. These, these counties right here, it's just, it's not a realistic scenario. Um, now, could we be wrong? Sure, if we're missing a realignment, we can be wrong. If there's an actual realignment going on, which you usually cannot predict, we would be wrong. Um, can you predict a realignment? No. I'm, I have in mind you cannot predict a realignment very easily. You can sometimes see signs coming, but you'd be lying if anyone in 2016, serious, serious academics were telling you Trump is going to get within two in Maine or Clinton's going to be demolishing Republicans in, in you know, places like Orange County. Like that's a little bit more predictable. People didn't see the other side of it. It's, it's really difficult to do. Like, I don't know. Just, I don't, I don't see it in the cards. I'm curious what you guys think. This has been bouncing around my head for a while. Kind of a hot take, so I'll pass it around the uh, the stream here that kind of has to do with it. We've heard a lot about like, oh, Zeldin's doing so much better now. Like if he overperforms, he might drag um, some Republicans in the House races across the finish line. How much do you guys buy my hot take? My hot take is this, that when one candidate of your party improves at the top of the ticket in a non-presidential race, um, so for example, Zeldin, um, it has minimal effects on the other people, on the other candidates of your party down ballot, unless that top of the ticket candidate is bringing out new voters who wouldn't have voted otherwise. My thinking is that – I'm not saying there's no, nobody like this exists, but my thinking is that it's hard to believe that if Zeldin, let's say, is down 10 in a district and the Democrat is also up 10 in that same district – that if Zeldin converts a bunch of, of Democratic voters, they will now also jump to the Republican House candidate. I think uh, it depends. I think it depends I, I was, on the region. I was going to say this, too. I think it depends, and I think it's different in New York specifically mm -hmm. because so many of these uh, – multiple of these upstate seats are open seats. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically the 22nd and the 19th. Both of these are open seats. They have no – there's no incumbent there. And I think there's, and I, I would argue this on Long Island too in the first district. Uh, I think there's probable cause there to believe that possibly Zeldin boosting the top of the ticket would help those Republicans there. I think it is severely less effective in races where there are incumbents. Mm -hmm. So I, I think don't think this will help the Republican in the 18th or 17th. I don't think this will help a Republican in the fourth district or I think the 20, I think the 25th is very much just a nonsense district. I don't know what the hell's happening there right now, but it sounds like a lot of nonsense. So, so here, here's the way I would, here's the way I would put it. New York is actually different in my opinion, because I have a history of Republican elected officials at the local and County level that do very, very well divorced from the Republican party. And when you get voters who already vote for a lot of Republicans at the local level, take for example, Nassau County, this is a Biden plus 10 County. This is a county that does not go to that does not go to Republicans at the federal level for a very long time. It's not gone to Republicans since 1988. Republicans have been stuck at about 45 percent, 46 percent since 2004. Um, it also has a count. All of its elected uh, countywide leaders are Republicans. It is a Republican county commission. Uh, it is a strong history of electing Republicans. I could see a Zeldin performance in Nassau County correlating with him doing with republicans doing better in districts three and four 
Another example I would give is the 25th district. We actually have a concrete example of this, 2014. Um, Rob Astorino won Monroe County in 2014. Uh, he, he lost the 25th district narrowly by about 600 votes. At the same time, Louise Slaughter in a race that everyone had rated as safe Democratic. Nobody thought Louise Slaughter was going down. She won by about 900 votes. Uh, Monroe County is also a county that has a history of electing Republicans. They've had county executives. I think right now their county commission is uh, the county uh, legislature has a Democratic majority, but one of those Democrats caucuses with the Republicans, which gives the Republicans a majority. Basically, in, in New York, you have a lot of people who routinely vote to split their tickets in, in upstate New York and in Long Island. Where I don't see this working is Westchester County, which is a lot of college-educated voters who used to vote for Republicans like Rob Astorino, and then after Trump were like, no, I'm never voting for a Republican again. That is the difference. I think it's trickier there. Well, but, but like, as far as this goes, the 25th, I don't think the 25th is a terrible stretch district. I just don't think it's going to happen. Like, here's my question, though, right? Like, yeah, Slaughter and Astorino's margins or Slaughter and Astorino's races correlated. But is that because, like, people who would not have voted for the Republican in Slaughter's race voted for the Republican after Astorino convinced them to vote for him? Or is that just because the makeup of the electorate that came out that day in that district was um you know was basically even right like there's there's like i, I don't know how to describe it but like i you can't really do a controlled experiment right because you don't know how mm -hmm. people, you don't know exactly the sequence of how people think but like i'm just thinking about like an example in pennsylvania right where like mastriano arguably is doing worse than his polls were when he first won the nomination right like he was down mm -hmm. five back when he won the nomination now he's down like 10 right? He has done worse. Shapiro has improved his numbers since that time. But in the same time span, like John Fetterman has started doing worse, right? Like Shapiro improving his numbers has not magically made a bunch of people convert from going from voting for Dr. Mm -hmm. Oz to voting for John Fetterman. So like, I'm just not sure that there's like, I, I think, yeah. I, I think Kras has a good point because I, I, I've tried to make this point. Governor's races are weird for whatever reason. There, there seems to be still a lesser polarization effect in governor's races than there are in Senate races. My question is, and I think this is a legitimate question, is if people believe that uh, the the Republican running against Schumer, right, it's some no name, Joe, I think Joe Pinon, whatever the hell, yeah. I think that might be his name. Uh, if 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 he can do better, if he, people are saying they believe Pinon can get to 35, 40 percent. If he can do that, then I would say there would probably be a small correlation there that, hey, this group of voters has changed a little bit. Some of them who voted for Biden in 2020 are just really, really pissed off and are showing their middle finger, basically, and are saying we're going to vote for Republicans in 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, I, can't, I, I would say I can't at that see. point, then, then we can argue that, I think. I can't see Schumer's opponent getting 40%. I just can't see it. I can't see it either, but yeah. some well, people I would say, are saying yeah. it could happen. And if it could happen, mm -hmm. I'm I don't think it'll happen either. But in in the range that if it does happen, again, if we see Chuck Schumer fall below sixty five percent, we're talking about Republicans getting victory maybe in some House seats. That I would say back in late August, late September, around Labor Day, mm -hmm. we didn't necessarily see them doing so well. In I think I think that would be my argument. See, I think, I think there are just some 
Democratic congressmen in New York who are just uniquely vulnerable, specifically Sean Patrick Maloney, seems to just be uniquely vulnerable. Uh, good job carpetbagging and kicking Mondaire Jones out of his district. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would say I would say kicking out Jones, who had a relatively good relationship with the Hasidic Jewish community in uh, in Rockland for Maloney. I mean, for me, I I actually buy like the Maloney numbers a lot because you don't have President Biden going to the Hasidic Jewish community there and be like going to the rabbis and be like, you have an open line of communication to me. He would not be doing that if they were not in trouble. No, um, I, I buy the Maloney weakness. Uh, absolutely. Not just because I would be, he might be the only Democrat I'd be okay with losing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, I think we've been on with New York for a while. Let's go on to Pennsylvania because I think that's a really interesting one. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of people on Twitter watch this debate. A lot of people in general watch this debate. And the general consensus from virtually everyone who has seen the debate is that John Fetterman did not do a good job. Um, this was known ahead of time. This was expected. The thing is, people didn't. I don't think people expected it to be this bad, right? There was an idea going into the Herschel Walker debate in Georgia that he would just put on this embarrassing performance. And he didn't. He wasn't great, but he wasn't terrible. There was this idea that Joe Biden would, would when he would, would debate, he would be just the worst debater ever. And he wasn't. For that matter, Trump. People were really concerned that Trump would be a terrible debater. He wasn't great, but he was not abysmal. Fetterman is probably the single worst de- political debating performance I've seen in my life. Um, and I don't say that lightly. This was um, – it was somewhat difficult to watch at points. Um, it was it was just not a good performance. And it was, it was something you could probably see coming in hindsight. But it also is kind of divorced from Fetterman's rally performance, which, again, those are not great. But at rallies, he seemed much more in sync and oh. – I think it's a different environment. This, yeah, that's an environment difference there. It, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I've been very frustrated by all the discourse around this. Um, I've only seen parts of the debate. I have a piece I'm doing, and I'm gonna watch the whole thing then. Mm-hmm. But I've been frustrated by all the discourse because, yes, of course, a recent stroke survivor is not going to do as well in. Basic, what I think could be fairly described as a competitive speaking environment, that's just not going to go well. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just a reality. I mean, I get why it had to be done. He had to go debate, and I'm glad he debated. I think it was important for him to show that. I think it was important for him to get out in front of this. But I don't know. I, I'm just surprised by the, I guess... I don't know. I think people are both overreacting to the debate's importance. Um, The point I was going to bring up with Hochul and Zeldin, but can bring up here just as easily, is debates don't matter, really. I I don't think that this is going to affect voters all that much. And I don't know that it really should. I mean, Fetterman is not a good speaker with the new challenges he wasn't a good he, i mean frankly he wasn't a good speed speaker before the stroke the debating was never his strong point and, uh, even his team admits this yeah i mean and of course he's going to have added difficulties after a stroke with auditory processing issues and speech delays that's just going to happen mm-hmm. so i i don't know i'm confused by all of the dooming from democrats in pennsylvania like um uh, Schumer, uh, well, not Schumer, actually. Uh, I think it was Rendell. Um, well, it, 
I think it's a matter you have to have watched I, the debate. Can, I, think, I think if anyone should speak, I should speak on this here. Uh, you know, if if you look, I think the concern from Pennsylvania Democrats, and I'm looking specifically here at Ed Rendell's reaction, is that I think the concern is those who do watch the debates, and I will point out that because the Phillies ended their championship series in five games, that meant there was suddenly nothing on that night, uh, on Tuesday night. So I think the concern here is that those who did watch the debate, who were potentially mainly composed in the educated suburbs of Pennsylvania, where, where the Oz team is really trying to target voters and the Fetterman campaign knows that they, they are probably losing some of the voters there from the Shapiro camp to the Oz camp. They're probably suburban voters in those Philly collar uh, counties that are going to split their ballot for Shapiro and Oz or no gubernatorial candidate in Oz or whatever. And I think the concern here is that those, again, very educated who politically involved, not necessarily politically involved, but politically trying to think of the right word here. Politically not not necessarily involved, but they're they're aware. politically informed, politically aware. I think yeah, politically aware. I think is a good way to describe them. Who who would go and watch this debate on Tuesday night, and they did not see the performance. I I think no. that undeni- I think I think the fracking answer specifically uh, is is in bad look. I think that is a clip that I don't know if it's been clipped yet. Uh, but I think that is one that if it is clipped, that is one that, that is – I'm surprised his team did not prepare him specifically for that. Like I would say if there was one issue that I would have prepared him specifically on, mm-hmm. I would have been fracking because he has made a – I think maybe even more so than Oz on some ish, on most on some key issues. I would say Fetterman on fracking, he has made maybe one of the biggest U-turns uh, on comments on from – uh, a, running to running a statewide campaign. There were com- many comments made before uh, this cycle from Fetterman on fracking that very much uh, dissuaded from his positions in prior years. Uh, and I would have been, I would have been like, that would have been the key one that I would have been prepared to have a, at least some sort of a due diligence answer on. And I think the way that went and the way that can be clipped and maybe maybe this doesn't matter. Maybe fracking just isn't that much of concern to those politically aware, highly educated voters. But the the way I think in that he answered it, not necessarily the content itself, I mm-hmm. think is is the way people could be concerned about that because that that might have been his worst, the worst question of the night for him. I think in terms of how he answered it, I actually think it was the second worst. I think it was the se- I'll say it at the end, but I, I think it was the second worst answer he gave. Uh, I think the so I think there are two things that are um, I see people in the chat saying, yes, debates do matter sometimes, sometimes. I think there's an argument to be made that it matters here. But the reason I don't think it matters here and the reason I don't think that clip will actually be used, Joe, is I think there is there's uh, there's no good way to clip this for the Oz camp. Because if you clip Fetterman speaking slowly and if you clip the speech issues, you're going to be rightly accused of attacking somebody for their disability. You're going to be 
you're going to be attacking them for their speech issues after a stroke. I think that's a problem for the Oz camp. I'll push back here and I'll say that I think where I think it's the second part. I think it's the second part where he's pushed on it. You can clip, you can clip his previous answers he's given. And I think the way he, I think you can clip the second part where okay. he kind of stumbles over it, and he. We're, I think it's this again. I think it's that stumbling over it, okay. where that's that could just be an answer where I think you could see an an un an unexpected performance be happen. Like the question was on the push was unexpected, and then someone kind of just stumbles over it. I think the way that happened, okay. that is what gets clipped. Not the full answer. I don't think the full answer. Again, the full answer wasn't good in my opinion, but. The, the the second part, the pushback, you can clip, you know, his previous answers, previous statements he's given on fracking. You can clip the second part where he stumbles. And I think you can make the argument that's just him not being prepared. That's not sure mm-hmm. the stroke. I, I agree with you. They can't they can't go there. There's a limit where they can go super hard on this because the, the, there is a line that has to explicitly be towed that maybe if this was just him and he just had that answer. That you can't go out, you can't go all out. I I totally agree with you on that mm-hmm. because there there is a tough line that has to be towed here. However, I think to say that they can't do it, I think is a reach. I think these are these are very creative people who make these ads, mm-hmm. and well, I would I would not underestimate their ability to do so. Yeah, sure. I don't think I don't think we have TV ratings for this debate yet either. As as far as I know, they haven't put anything out in terms of. How many people watched it? Do do you mind if I make one other point? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please. Please. I I think there's the the issue with the discourse is that nobody's doing what you're suggesting, Joe. Nobody's attacking the lack of prep. Uh, Or none of what I've seen is. It's all that he stumbled over his words, that he didn't sound great. And he didn't. He He sounded like a stroke survivor five months after a stroke. Um, I think if you want to attack the fact that, oh, he didn't have a good fracking answer. Yeah, he didn't have a good fracking answer. His team didn't prepare him well. And I don't know why his team didn't prepare him well. They knew this debate was going to be a potential flashpoint for the cycle. And it seems like they just neglected the job. Well, they didn't even prepare ahead of the debate in time. After the debate, they were blaming the closed captioning, and then Nexstar came out and said that they only did one of their two rehearsals. They were given a chance to have two rehearsals with the equipment. They chose to only do one. I just think the team is not very good. Um, it, it sounds like the team failed him in this case. I I don't know. That- and I, I think that's a fair criticism to have considering where he is at health-wise. I, I think that is a fair criticism to say that the team – failed him more in this case maybe than the actual candidate himself mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and uh, i mean i think there's uh, there's an important point about how the public is going to view a a, a disabled candidate here i mean i think mm-hmm. i don't know how federal, how it's going to be viewed because we only had one poll and it was an online poll and uh, of the debate yeah. performance, and I don't trust those. No, but you, you shouldn't. I but, think the reaction is going to be a lot less doom and gloom, and ju- it, I think it's going to be less lopsided than it was. Well, uh, well, on let's look at it this way, right? Is that I think people, when people are looking at a debate, they're looking for moments or they're looking for things. Most of the time, debates don't matter because nothing of interest happens. 
right? If like Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt are debating, you know exactly what's going to happen. Adam Laxalt is going to be the Republican. She's going to be the Democrat. He's going to say his stuff. She's going to say hers. And unless one of them has a royally terrible gaffe, it's generally going to come out where you, whichever candidate you watched and liked going into it are the ones you're going to support afterwards. Where this is different is two things. One is obviously Fetterman's positions. That's where the fracking stuff matters. That's where some of the other answers matters. The, the moderators pressed him a lot on specific issues in ways I would not have expected going in. Not necessarily fracking, but they pressed Oz too. But like there were a lot of times where Fetterman was pressed on a policy position and he didn't have a very good answer for it. The second is, of course, the fitness for office thing. And yeah, this is a difficult area with a stroke. I do think if his team had been up front from the beginning about what this was and what it entailed, a lot of this would have been blunted. Because you, you look at the start of this, there were no issues. The, the team said there was not any issues long term. It's not a big deal. You had the doctor signing off on it. They, you know, they didn't mention it was two days after. This entire time, that's been an issue. And then in the middle of the debate, he's asked why his medical records aren't going to be released, which he could give a normal answer for that, which is you don't normally release medical records for a Senate debate. That doesn't happen. You, Senate candidates don't do that. He didn't have a very good answer. I think regardless of whether you like it or not, the fitness for office question is where it's going to matter. And it's very difficult for me to imagine someone going into this debate, being undecided, looking at this and going, unless they're really sympathetic with Fetterman's stroke for for, for whatever reason, looking at this and going like, I think Fetterman is really com- is, is really competent for Stanford office. I think he's a I think he's he's going to be doing a great job and he's not going to have any issues whatsoever. That is probably the worry for Democrats. And that's why so many were saying afterwards he shouldn't have even debated. They should not have even done this. I, and I don't, agree with, to be gained. Ah! I don't agree with that. Yeah, but okay, but wait, but I think the reason why debates like I mean, they can matter. I I don't want to say they never matter. I just think the reason they matter less than they used to. I think a lot of people's perception of how debates can matter are like it's like seared in their brain from when like Michael Dukakis like couldn't answer whether or not he would like kill his wife's rapist during like the 1988. But the, the problem is that like one is that like, even on gotcha questions like that, the issue is just people just don't watch that much TV anymore. Like live sports are, are a bigger moneymaker than ever and less and less people as a percentage of the population watch them than ever. Right. Like that's an example of like, there's so many options of people to watch. Like Joe was saying the Phillies weren't on probably added some viewers to the pool that Pennsylvania Senate debate. But like when sports aren't on, people watch Netflix. And like when they're bored of Netflix, they like watch YouTube. Like there's just this like whole thing where it's like debates are like the only I show mean, in town. I, I, I would counter by to at least a mm-hmm. certain extent that this this was live streamed on many of these certain channels and there, sure. there were live streams on YouTube and stuff. Sure, but I'm but even even to that point, like I'm just I, I'm just saying like I think the reason debates maybe don't move the needle as much as people expect anymore and i think it's not just viewership and that live tv viewership has declined across the board it's also think about the numbers right if you have a hundred viewers just using an easy number 100 viewers turn into a debate right and we know from polls that about 10 anywhere from like five to ten percent of those people so five to seven or five yeah five to ten of those people are undecided right they don't know which way they're going to vote um and so you know, if you have 100 people watching and let's say 10 of them are undecided, then you have to think how many of those 10 people watching will have their mind will, – will, will decide mm-hmm. based on what they've seen, right? And then of those people who decide based on what they've seen, how many will then stick with that decision all the way to election day? So like that's why 
in 2016 and 2020, Trump's debate performances didn't help him like at all. He actually lost ground every time he debated, but each time it was like he would lose two or three percent in the polls and then he would rebound after a week or two because the number of undecided voters tuning in who happen to usually be lower information is not that high. The number of ones that will make a decision based on the debate is even lower, and the number of ones that will stick with that decision once they make it is even lower than that. So, like that's why debates are hard to move the needle in a polarized environment. But I would push yeah. back on two. I would push back on two points there. One is that I actually think people under understate how much regular Americans watch TV, and by regular I mean like boomer age Americans who like they spend more. T- the average American spends more time watching television than the average than the average MMO player spends playing an MMO. Like you think of you think of like. Someone well, who's playing the average like, MMO all day. Player. The average MMO player is not the guy holding the uh, two-liter Coke bottle under the desk. So no, right, but it's like it's, it's a lot of hours a day. The average American watches it like six to eight hours of television a day. It's a lot of television. The question is what they're watching. The second I push back on is, again, the gaffe moment. Yeah, the, the Trump debates didn't matter too much because he never had a career-ending gaffe. You know whose debate performance did matter? Rick Perry. Because he said he was going to end uh, three federal agencies, could only name two of them. Yeah, my like, stuff like not... that, like something that's so uh, so terrible of an answer, that's where things could end. That's where you're – or well, the, the, the Chris Christie he... nuking Marco Rubio in 2016. The Rubio yeah, Marco, Rubio's, Marco Rubio's right. performance uh, – Marco Rubio's presidential campaign was dead before that. No, it was <laughs> – it was yeah, it was – that was New Hampshire, right? This was ahead of New Hampshire. This wasn't ahead yeah, of South yes. Carolina. So like – I think it really did matter. I think that re- I can say, looking yeah, back, Eric, Eric, it, it all, did matter. All, all the ones you're bringing up, I, the reason Trump didn't have a career or race-ending moment in the presidential debate is because I just don't think it is. Liter- I literally think it is impossible to have a gaffe so bad you it decides a presidential race. The examples you bring up are primaries, which are inherently mm-hmm. less polarized because they're primaries. But we're talking about Senate it, races too. No, this I know. Kraz is right though here. Kraz like, is right here. In that this is a different population. Here, I, I think I'm probably spit in the middle between Eric and Craig. I don't know what the hell's going mm. on here. But anyway, <laughs> you know, the fact is, is that, look, this was a hyped up debate because of the question on how Fetterman was going to look and how he was going to perform. That was a question that was brought up. No matter, I, I understand why some people are upset about that, why they don't like how that's been performed. The fact is, is that a lot of the job that is done right now in the Senate is debating and voting. Fetterman can vote. The question is, how well does he debate? Mm -hmm. Before this, it was already not very good. After this debate, it has been proven to potentially be worse. Will that affect things? I don't know. The fact of the matter is, is that this Senate race has become increasingly tightened since mid let's say mid-september since mid-september mm-hmm. this has been a race that has increasingly tightened these of even as the governor's race has become farther apart again my point that i made earlier governor excuse me governor's races are for whatever reason still inherently less partisan than these federal races are maybe because it's a state race maybe because more people more low info voters pay attention there because it's a state level race and they think it affects them more i I don't know, but 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 either way, will this in the end matter? Who knows yet? We don't really have any polling yet from post debate. We really don't have a whole lot. 
We and there, there's a couple of our leading pollsters. Throw them on the average with what you win. This is also let's remind ourselves. Unlike I know people in the comments are bringing up Terry McAuliffe. The Terry McAuliffe debate happened, you know, late September, early October. If I'm if I'm remembering the gaff correctly, it happened mm-hmm. I think late September. That's that's a whole that's a that's a whole ass month to run ads with what McAuliffe said. That was a whole month to run ads and change what I will say I think the Fetterman camp did a very good job of is making sure that this debate was late. This debate happened with about two with three weeks to go until the election. That is I not a lot of time later. to change them. Yeah, I people know people were already voting. People people were already voting. Um people were already voting. I, I also want to mention that that is mostly mail in voting. We do not have early we do not have any early in person voting in Pennsylvania, which is stupid. We should have that in exchange for no excuse mail-in voting. We shouldn't have the no excuse mail voting. We should have the early in-person voting. And I think it would be very, very good. But I, my opinions on that, I digress. The fact of the matter is, I don't think necessarily either of those who have early who have done the mail-in voting, most of those people probably would not have their opinions changed by this debate. I wanna I wanna make that very, very clear. This is not absentee, this is not in-person early voting, this is mail only in per, only early voting. Those people who do that, 98% of them will, would have not had their opinions changed by this debate anyways. And I would bet it would be the same percentage for those who are going to do the mail-in voting through uh, through these next two and a half weeks. Wait, are, we getting just, a governor that, debate? are we getting governor debate in Pennsylvania? No, because Mastriano, Mastriano refused. Well, so that's when you're, when you're down 10, the best play is to knock it on TV. Yeah, I mean, no, look, that you're missing the wisdom. I haven't finished here yet. I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I have two points after that, if you don't mind. But yeah, that's fine. But you know, look, this debate in the end, the question is did it change the mind of a significantly statistic enough population in probably like the Philly suburbs, Lehigh Valley area that said, in this, again, what I expect to be probably a race two points in either way to change the debate so that way it favors one more than the other. I can't say that it does. I have seen no proof of that yet. I think this is, again, there is a certain, I said that he did bad. It was not a good, it was probably a maybe worse than I expected debate performance from John Fennerman. Do I think that was maybe enough? I can't say. I don't live here in Pennsylvania enough because I have to go to school out of state. I have to move. I have to pick up my shit and I have to go back down there. So, you know, I don't know yet. We'll see. Let the, you know, at this point, it's kind of just a let the votes be counted type thing. I don't know if it'll ever be declared. I'm sure people will say it is if Oz wins. I'm sure. I'm sure we will have pundits saying that the debate was where the change happened. Yeah, but it wasn't. I can't. I what, can't say that it was. No, what, what you're I missing is that. what you're missing. We're going to go to Dylan, Eric. Eric, we're going to go to Dylan. <laughs> so, sorry, two points. Um, you mentioned um, Joe at the beginning that voters th- see the two jobs of a senator as voting and debating on legislation. I would push back on that second point. I don't know that voters really know what the job of a senator is beyond voting. I, I don't know that they I don't know that voters think, oh, the job of a senator is to get on the floor and debate their colleagues on legislation. I, genuinely, I don't know. I don't think they do, by and large. And, and I also don't know how much that matters. The votes are decided before they come to the floor anyway, generally. Um, 
second point is uh, to compare with McAuliffe. Um, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I missed it. There's only one moment that's being clipped out and put on TV, and it's not any of Fetterman's gaffes, from what I can tell. It's the Oz abortion thing at the end. Um, and will that matter? I doubt it. I mean, Oz's position on abortion has been known since the beginning of the campaign. But I just think that says something, that it has yet to be announced what is being clipped at. Uh, should we throw this to uh, early vote numbers? We can do some run yes. Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, lead on, you lead on that one, Kurt. Uh, so, right yeah, so we got some early vote numbers coming in. I, I've repeatedly told people to not read too much into these. Um, I think that... Uh, they're kind of a mixed bag, to be honest, right? Like in Pennsylvania, I think you see Democrats exceeding their numbers from 2020, um, doing better in terms of turnout rate and raw share of the votes. But if you look at a state like Florida, you know, Republicans are crushing Democrats in Florida. Um, I think one of the reasons why these returns can be so hard to parse through is because you don't know whether the missing voters, whether the increase for one party is due to genuine increased turnout or if it's due to one party's voters waiting to use a different method of voting. So like this comes in where it's like um, John Cuvion, who's, who does early voting analysis on election Twitter, um, and he's a pollster, said, you know, oh, Florida is a disaster for Democrats because they're doing way worse by mail. And, you know, they're doing way worse in early voting as well. Um, and that might be true. But to illustrate why this is complicated, um, if you think that Florida is going to have lower turnout and that it's going to have lower turnout because Democrats won't show up and these numbers simply illustrate that Democrats aren't showing up, all this makes perfect sense. But if you think Florida is going to have very high turnout, and we've heard that many people think Florida is going to have very high turnout, then you have to almost think mathematically that this lack of Democratic voting early means that much more Democrats are waiting till Election Day. The reason being you can't have near presidential turnout while also simultaneously having much more Republican electorates in voting by mail and early voting. Well, and define, define define near presidential because like last time from 20 – because we had a very, very above average presidential election in 2020. 2016. Uh, let me look at the president. So presidential turnout in 2020 was really high. It was uh, 66 – Yeah, 67 percent. 2016 was 56. Uh, 2012 was 55 2008 was 58. So like, what are we thinking of here? Closer in the 58% range? Or? I, I was thinking, well, I, I was going to say that I've heard um, estimates for closer to 2020 than 2016 for some states, hmm. depending. Um, but if you think that, right, you have to think. Like, you, like it's just not mathematically possible to have, like, only it, – it's not mathematically possible to have 10 million votes – in uh you know 2020 and 9 million votes in 2022 um and you know have there be like every single batch of the electorate is much more Republican. It's, it's just not possible like so you have to temper your early voting analysis with analysis about turnout um and this is what john ralston has done when he analyzes nevada is he says look democrats in terms of percentage in terms of votes have a pretty solid firewall in nevada that they're building right now but you know, turnout looks a lot lower than many analysts expected. And so then the question becomes, well, if turnout ends up what analysts expect, then you have to think election day turnout is going to be much bigger um, 
than maybe people expect. And so you have to temper your analysis with analysis about turnout. If you just take the early voting numbers at face value, you're going mm-hmm. to be arguing that mathematically impossible things are going to happen. And so that's why these are these are sometimes tough to analyze. Well, and, and there are reasons to believe, especially like in Florida with the mail-in ballots, that Democrats are going to vote in person more. COVID is not as much of a top of mind concern anymore. So there's less incentive to stay home and quarantine. I will also note this might be a this might be a demographic thing. Like when you look at 2020, um, the places where Democrats actually did okay in like in person on election day voting is places where Democrats' base is predominantly Black and Hispanic voters. Um, the reason why 2020 was like the upside down was like in past years it was always conventional wisdom that vote by mail was a Republican leaning vote method because it was all old white people. And like younger and non-white voters didn't vote by mail as much. Um, and so like the problem is that on election day, you might see something kind of out of whack where it's like in Georgia, for example, in 2020, election day was like a super white, super Republican electorate for the most part. But if you consider that before 2020, uh, election day votes were actually much more diverse, much younger, right? And that 2020 was, you know, Democrats are much more motivated by fear of COVID to stay home and vote by mail or vote early. Um, you might see kind of bigger shifts in states where the Democratic base is non-white Democrats. So that's why, actually, I think that, for example, Democrats are matching their numbers for, uh, sorry, matching their 2020 vote by mail numbers in Pennsylvania. I think that's largely because the Democratic base in Pennsylvania is not non-white voters. It's like, educate. it's more educated white people. And so, that's where I think like that group might stick with vote by mail, but I think you might see. I just, I want to point out that my literal parents have stuck with vote by mail. Right, right. So I, I guess well, what I'm well, forcing my sister to stick with. Vote what by I'm mail. boiling, what I'm boiling this down to is that I think that educated white Democrats, even if they didn't vote by mail before 2020, have largely stuck with vote by mail. But I think that I I would I would strongly agree with that. I yes, would, so I, I think would, that, and I think that non-white Democrats who did not vote by mail before 2020 are more likely to have switched back to voting in person. And I, if you look at Virginia too, I would yeah. point this out. If you look at Virginia, some of the, the highest vote by mail returns because they have VPAP and VPAP is mm. one of the greatest modern election tracking services to be yeah. ever be created. Uh, the places where vote by mail is the highest is by far and away the 11th and 8th districts, which are based <laughs> in Arlington, Alexandria, Falls Church, small city, but it's independent, and Fairfax. 8th mm. is Arlington, Alexandria, and then parts of Fairfax, and the 11th is now all Fairfax. They have by far and away the highest vote-by-mail numbers and return rate. Kraz, yes. I, want you, I, I want you to guess which district has the lowest. Uh, the 9th, right? No. Oh, no, you're talking about return rate, not numbers. Return rate. Oh, uh, four, three, three, the third, yeah. because I want to point out the fourth takes in some still relatively white parts of Chesterfield and right, right, right. and uh, of its South side areas. The third district is the, is not majority black, but it's like 48% uh black population. It's Portsmouth, Norfolk, Hampton, uh, Newport news, mm-hmm. and the Northern part of Chesapeake city. Uh, the more which is which has more uh, black population, that has the lowest return rate of by far, and it's by a pretty wide margin too of any congressional district in Virginia right now. 
And I think I, I, again, being someone who transfers from his wonderful home here in Lancaster County, it's nice, quiet and calm here compared to whatever the hell Nova is. Uh, you know, I can, <laughs> I can tell you exclusively that those rich white people in Nova are sticking with vote by mail and early vote more than they ever would have without COVID. I would, I would, I, I, a hundred percent agree with Crass here. I, I love mail-in voting. I would like to stick with it, please. We don't really. I, I, I I'm not yeah. Of course, because it, it makes a whole lot of sense for you, Dylan. Yeah, it's very convenient. <laughs> I just voted in person because my voting my voting center is like a mile up the road from me on weekdays, and so I just went there early voted. Friday. I, I going to be the only election day voter in this in this group. I usually I have, voted because yeah, I can't I can't be home. It's, so, yeah. I usually voted on election day, but like it's literally up the road for me, and I'm Honestly. pretty sure if I voted on election day, I would have had to drive to. Well, so it's funny. Early voting. Duke actually has an early voting um really uh, station on campus, so all the kids can vote back home in New Jersey. Um. <laughs> it's, it's for North Carolina, um, but, <laughs> but I won't um, be. I won't be voting. I'm in. New, I'm in New Jersey second. Um, I don't have a competitive race. <laughs> no, but uh, in all in all seriousness, like I think that, like for me, it's more just like I just think election day is fun. Like I like waking up on. Oh yeah, there's there's a fun aspect. Like it's it, very fun. I... Like last last cycle, I drove I drove my girlfriend back to Pennsylvania to vote the night before, and then woke up at like seven a.m. to drive her to the to the uh, polling place, and then like you know, it's just like it's fun. Um, and I don't do vote by mail because when I was in college. I remember the postal service was so notoriously bad in college, which is why I'm home this weekend. It was they, bad, they, they bad, didn't, they bad. didn't accept, they didn't yeah. accept my new address, and I had yeah. to come home. I don't, I don't know if people in other college towns have this experience. Like, I don't know if Boone is like this or whatever, but like, it was bad, bad, bad. Like, I remember my sophomore year, I tried to vote, and the post office told me um, uh, that I said, you know, I have to, I have to. Uh, postmark my ballot by election day keep postmarking my ballot they told me yeah, yeah 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 it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine it's fine uh repeatedly and then i got a letter from california saying your ballot wasn't postmarked we didn't count it um and then <laughs> when i lived in an off-campus house like the postal service was so bad they used to deliver the wrong packages places they never took our mail like i was just like no way like i like i was just like no way so i i, I voted early in person last time but i'll probably go election day this time just because it sounds fun <laughs> In Boone, uh, it was kind of weird. I didn't vote in Boone. I voted back at home. I split hmm. time between Boone and my home county. I just lived in my home county. It didn't really matter. You're in the same district and everything. Right. But uh, there was a fight for years between the city of Boone and everyone else in the county over whether or not there should be an early voting center in the Plymouth Student Union. <laughs> so basically, here's the thing. The city of Boone, uh, the people in charge of the city of Boone do not like college students. And they specifically don't like college students getting involved in politics because it means less power for them. So this is an issue where the Republican uh, groups in Lacaga County that were uh, Republican student groups and Democratic student groups were in broad agreement that there should be an early voting start on campus. And the county, which was generally which was controlled by Republicans, but was you know, was broadly against there being an early voting start on campus, because if there's an early voting start on campus, it means more students are voting. They're voting in the city of Boone. It's less likely for City of Boone uh, candidates who are the wealthy uh, groups there to win and more likely for candidates backed by students to win. So that was the big conflict. They only added the the student voting site after I left uh, campus, I think. It was either after or right during 
but it was genuinely a struggle for like five to ten years because everyone on campus was like, give us a voting site. And the county was like, no, until I think the state stepped in and said, no, you have to do this. Uh, it was it was strange, to put it simply. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. So the, the, my long diatribe on early voting numbers is that I think someone mentions about um, uh, more Republicans are voting in states like California. I think I think return rate of ballots is not a terrible metric to look at. Like that's my that's my take on this is that like if you look at the return rate of ballots, it's not terrible because that's more akin to like just turnout rate and it's normalized. It's mm -hmm. normalized for the fact that people who have chosen to not vote by mail after doing so in 2020 usually don't request ballots. And so it doesn't it won't lead you wrong to think that a bunch of voters mm -hmm. have dropped out of the electorate when they have not. So Republicans have improved on return rate in lots of different states they've improved on return rate in california versus 2020 they've improved on return rate in florida versus 2020 the only caution i will give with this is that in 2020 a lot of states mailed a lot more mail ballots to a lot more voters and in a lot of cases republicans got those mail ballots and then as the election approached mm -hmm. took partisan signals to not return them and to go vote in person and so I would just caution a little bit that the return rates for Republicans in 2020 might have been a little bit deflated versus where they would have been if it was not that states were sending a lot of mail ballots to a lot of different people. Um, oftentimes, making it easier to get one. Um, and so that's like the one caution. But I think that overall return rates are not a bad metric to look at. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the uh, early voting shows either side is super favored yet. Well, I think you'd have to know turnout, right? Like in Nevada, for example, Democrats have a bigger like firewall is what they call it in Nevada right now than they did in 2018. But of course, most people expect turnout to be higher than 2018. So like you have to know what the turnout is going to end up being to understand whether how to read that. Um, and so, you know, it's always tough. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure that any of the votes point to like, any definitive outcome, mm -hmm. um, which kind of makes them useless. I think that some people have tried <laughs> to say point to something definitive, and I, I don't really agree with that. But. I, I think the problem is people are looking for something more helpful than the polls because the polls have been just really Very strange. Well, you're, you're not excited about another Texas gubernatorial race poll showing a, a high single-digit lead for Greg Abbott? I, no, I'm not excited. I also don't want a South Dakota poll. Please, I well, don't think you get Tennessee Gnome up twenty again. Look, I would like a Kansas poll, please. No, you're gonna get a, you're gonna get another uh, poll for Tennessee's gubernatorial race because this is what everyone is asking for: the difficult questions. And I don't need to see another poll showing uh, Mary Paltola up between five and fifteen. Because yeah, I don't I actually. I don't think if she wins, she'll win by five. I don't think that's a plausible outcome. Just. I think it's going to be very, very close. I, I mean, she but, got the Murkowski endorsement, so she got the Murkowski endorsement. But I think everyone who was going to vote for Murkowski for the most part was pretty much going to vote for her, or a good chunk of them. When you consider the brunt sure. of Murkowski supporters are actually Democrats. Um, yeah, but sure. that Democrat is still getting sixteen percent in that race, though, right? Like, yeah, it, it depends. Yeah. I mean, the thing with the thing with I don't want to go into Alaska too much, but Democrats in Alaska have not won the majority of the vote in a statewide race in like thirty years. I somehow doubt that all of a sudden Peltola is going to win by 15 
when Democrats have not oh, even been able to hit 50 percent of the vote. unreasonable. No, I don't think in fairness to Democrats, though, in Alaska, that state has three statewide races. You can get over 50 percent in it. It has the congressional race. It has the gubernatorial race and it has the Senate race. And for decades, Ted Stevens had a lock on that Senate seat. Um, the gubernatorial but even, races, even in 20, even in 2008, they didn't get in 2008. Um, yeah, but he, it was still Stevens running, and he—they needed a scan. Like they weren't going to win until the FBI indicted him, like a week before the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Don Young had a lock on that House seat for fifty years. Like obviously, mm-hmm. the Democrat was getting a majority there. So, I, in fairness, Democrats in Alaska, like yeah, they haven't gotten a majority of the vote in like thirty years. But that's also partly because the only race where they like plausibly could have was like like maybe the gubernatorial race and that always had like weird independence and shit too no the, so, the gubernatorial races though they're though they do matter like we have seen outcomes i think you have to look at a predicted outcome it's i don't think all of a sudden alaskans are gonna be like you know what mary propola likes fish we're gonna give her a 10 point win it is weird to how much possible um, support she yeah. seems to be getting versus like every other democrat ever <laughs> like it's just it's weird to me yeah i it, think it I, is I would be very surprised if she wins by more than five and honestly i would have kept sure. it a toss-up personally i think that the leans dem is probably what we would go to i would not be surprised at all if peltola wins and if it's one of those leans dem seats that every every forecaster has his leans it dem. is a leans dem seat it, it, the fa- i i understand the questions but fuck canada quality matters guys you know it, uh, it yeah, does matter canada quality matters it does matter nick it depends. And the problem is, is that nick baggage because he now is getting you know the shit kicked out of him because he did some questionable things to the Don Young people. And you have to understand, when you do that, people are going to be very mad at you for that because they were very loyal to this man. Well, so is it, it, people are going to be very, very upset at you if you tried to screw him over. But to be fair, to be fair, I would say that Don Young, his total was declining. He actually did worse than Trump and Sullivan in this last election. Um, there have been a lot of bleed. So, like, I get what you're saying. All I will say is that Looking into Alaska, going deep dive into Alaska, I if, if this is the situation where the Senate Leadership Fund is still putting money into Alaska because they they want to shore up Murkowski, if Murkowski is within five, like I would be really surprised if Peltola wins. I'd be shocked if she's within five. Like the reason I would be surprised if she's within five is because if you run that primary through ranked choice voting, obviously they didn't do it because it was for the top four, but if you run that Murkowski primary through ranked choice voting, I think she, she wins walking away. Like, I don't think it's particularly close. Mm-hmm. Really? I, yeah, I did not. She, yeah. Because, um, I didn't mean for that, this. Really. I what? did not mean to get us into an Alaska tent. <laughs> no, but, sorry. I, I just like, I remember this very well because Murkowski's first returns look pretty bad, but she ended up leading, I'm going to butcher her name, Miss Kelly over here. She Shibaka. ended up leading what? Shibaka. Shibaka. She ended up leading Shibaka by almost 7% when it was all counted. And so, like, if you really run the, the ranked choice voting on the minor candidates, change it probably not very much. And then you get to, like, the other Democrats and Republicans. And, like, I, I think Murkowski wins it not, like, probably by, like, 10%, like, I think solidly. And, like, a primary is where you have, like, the most loyal partisans coming out. And so, like, I think that mm-hmm. I, I I would be surprised if Murkowski loses because I think that given what we saw in the primary with a pretty hyper-partisan electorate because it's a primary, um, I think she she has a solid lead in the first ballot. And I think she she walks away from there. I don't all, all I'll say is I just – I have my reasons for thinking this. So I could be proven wrong on election day, but I have – a sneak I, I just am continually just just looking at the history of this it's like if you're looking at history for like new york for all these other states 
all of a sudden the idea that you're just going to be, especially if this is a wave, which we don't know, Democrats are spending like this is an R plus seven year. I don't think it's an R plus seven year. If this is anything close, this is R plus five. Like you're talking about needing to overperform the the top of the ticket by 15 points. Why the hell That's the, Mm -hmm. that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And yeah, Alaska is weird, but it's not that weird. It's weird and predictable manners. Again, I've, I've looked into Alaska a lot. I've written multiple articles on this. Alaska is weird in predictable ways. And what I mean by that in particular is, is they, is Alaska, you know, Democrats don't do very well in Alaska. They've not done very well in Alaska pretty much ever. Um, they have a limited coalition, which relies on them picking up support from either having independent candidates as their candidate or requiring a lot of Republican voters to vote for the Democrat, which Peltolo is the type of Democrat that that would work with. It's the challenge is that it's just, it is a very, very red state still 10 points in it. it. It's just a challenge. It is a, it is a challenge for Democrats to win in the state. And I know there's so many Democrats who are like, we're going to win Alaska. We're going to win Alaska. It's like Alaska is the future democratic state. Just, just looking into it, you need to, it, it's the same thing with the Utah, Utah stuff to a degree where Democrats are really confident, like in their long-term fortunes in Utah. I'm like, there, there are signs of a good thing, but you actually got to start, when you could, when your only path to winning is relying on the other party fracturing, it, it's it's it goes to show the strength of your party. Again, we'll see. But if this is R plus five or R plus seven, I really would struggle to see Poltola winning well, by R a large plus, margin. I feel like uh, we don't know, obviously, because the polls have been really weird. Mm-hmm. But I feel like R plus five, R plus seven is a is an unlikely result at this point. I'm not so sure. I, I again, I it depends on basically what you're looking at. If you're looking at generic ballot, there's so many. There's so many garbage online sample polls that are just terrible. You have Republican pollsters, which are of course showing Republicans winning by large margins. Who would have thought Rasmussen polls <laughs> would show Republicans winning by a wave margin? Yeah, like, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought the big village would have Democrats up by four? So the only thing I will say about about polling, we had our new poll bias tool come out, which yep. obviously everyone on this stream should go check out. But I think mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that it's kind of a it's kind of a catch twenty two, right? If you think that the polls in twenty twenty were really bad, and only mm-hmm. Trafalgar and Rasmussen had it right, they got the secret sauce. They know what's going on. Oh, you're like, forgetting about Barris. You're forgetting about Barris. That's the one the populist really loves. They love Barris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so. <laughs> If you think that, right, if you think those pollsters are genuinely more accurate because they purposefully diverge from um, the conventional wisdom on how much the GOP is getting because the conventional wisdom underestimates the GOP, those pollsters make up a much larger percentage of the polls in the average this year. And the reason that's interesting is because if that's the case, then you should also expect the polling bias to be much lower, if that makes sense, right? If you think Trafalgar and Rasmussen are, were way more accurate, are way more accurate, and they make up a larger percentage of the polling average, then the polling average has to be more accurate. Um, it can't be that you can have, um, you know, a massive polling error and simultaneously have Trafalgar, like, being the main driver of the polling average. That's just, like, wouldn't make any sense mm-hmm. unless it's a polling yeah. error in Democrats' favor. Yeah, I just, I don't see, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't see it, but... We have no good indicators right now. I feel like we're flying into election day basically blind. Oh, we're we're absolutely blind. All yeah. I can say is that is 
it just it i'm just getting a bunch of really weird indicators from this that are just extremely conflicting and i know that you should not take democratic spending in these districts seriously at the same time it is baffling to me that democrats are spending money in new york 25 for spending money in california 26 for spending money in washington and they're not showing up their opponents and their their candidates in swing seats and they're basically making no push into trump seats wait that is are you telling me that Wait, Eric, are you telling me that Democrats are panicking right before an election? This is this is unusual panic. Going into 2020, they were super confident. You had the ridiculous D triple C poll showing like Joe Cunningham you know, beat Nancy Mays by 13 points. Like you had that sort of nonsense. I just yeah. don't know if I don't know if they're stupid. I don't know if they're seeing something, or I don't know if there's actually it just it just it was just strange. Um but yeah. Uh regardless, we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. I think we've had a pretty good talk here. Um, do keep in mind, we're going to be, oh, so we'll, do we want to announce this this week or do we want to wait until Tuesday to, to, to hint at what we're doing? Um, what are we well, doing? we're doing it Monday. What are we doing? We're doing it Monday. No, no, not the ratings change, the other thing. The other thing we're also doing. We're also Monday. doing that Monday. Okay, perfect. Okay, so we wanted. <laughs> what are we doing Monday? Uh, we're doing the, uh, the pick'em. Yep. We're oh, bringing back our election pick'em. So if you're a longtime Elections Daily follower back with us in 2020, back when we maybe had, what was it, four, 5,000 uh, followers? 4,000. We, we didn't hit 5,000 until yeah. post. Yeah. So we had a we had a political pick'em contest, which was basically just if you if you want to put your you want to put your wits to the to the test. We have a list of races. Uh we're gonna put over under on them. This is not gambling, this is not betting, this is not predicted, just casually. Putting your guesses in, and whoever is the most accurate, we're going to be we're going to be shouting out. Uh, we're going to shout out the the most accurate person, and also we're going to be looking at the statistics to see how our followers did on the whole. Uh, pro tip in twenty twenty, our followers did not do extremely well, but also we Nobody didn't do did. extremely okay, well. Nobody did. So <laughs> our problem, our problem in twenty twenty was that we tried to make the lines so that we would get even action on both sides, which is usually what like Vegas does when they make lines for sports games. The problem with this was that the conventional wisdom was way too low on Republicans. Yeah. So it just meant that if you just bet Republicans on every single pick, you yeah. won, which is what happened. The person that just – We had Iowa at 1.5. We had yeah. Iowa at Trump plus 1.5. So, right? so <laughs> yeah, that was bad. So now instead what we're doing this year <laughs> is we're trying to make the most accurate lines possible. We're hoping that our lines get as close to the actual result as possible. Um we have some somewhat surprising ones on there, and we have a, co- a couple of fun prop bets as well. So mm-hmm. hopefully, people people like it. Yeah, we've we're we're expanding it this time. Uh, again, keep an eye out for this Monday. We have a ratings update coming up Monday. We're going to be thinking of we got some changes we're going to ma- be making. Uh, we're probably holding off a little bit on the major ones until midweek uh, because again, we're just waiting for something. Although we're waiting for nothing for the house polls because they aren't coming. Well, we everyone is too busy. Everyone is too busy polling Texas. Stop polling Texas. Poll <laughs> Kansas. Wait, are we going to get a final house poll? Or final, no. sorry, final seltzer poll? Oh, they never, no, put out the AG, they never put out the AG number? No, they, they did. Okay, good, good, good. Yep. So regardless, stay tuned for those. With that, we'll close off this episode. Thank you guys for watching again. Like and subscribe to our show if you like what we're doing, whether you're watching us on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, wherever, uh, podcast providers. We really appreciate your support. We're going to be obviously streaming election night. we got some fun details to show you of that. We've got live election mapping this time we got some really cool stuff we're gonna be doing following up on what we did in 2020 just uh, in fairness we also had it last time we got banned from twitter we were yeah we, yeah, we yeah tech. yeah so big tech center us but thankfully that. elon musk is in charge now and <laughs> yeah. will not ban us no i actually saying this in the chat i'm kind of worried that um when he says he's not like 
everyone who like there's no bands anymore i actually think what he means is oh don't worry i fired all the people in charge of bands but the band algorithms are still running <laughs> which is kind of a problem because it means we can band with no one to appeal wait, it to <laughs> like, wait are you telling me that elon didn't think something through I, I just I'm a little bit afraid the algorithms are still running and we would get banned and have no person to actually talk to. Like, no one's that in sounds the about right. Anymore. <laughs> this is this is what you call a pyrrhic victory. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. Again, keep in mind for that. Uh, you know, stay tuned for all this. We're really excited for that. Uh, we're excited to bring you some more stuff in the future. But yeah, with that, thank you guys for watching. We'll be back next week. We're going to try to do Friday again. If not, it'll be Saturday. And then you can join us in a couple weeks or uh, less than a week and a half for our election stream. So uh, thank you guys again, and we'll see you next time.